0: So I'm going to read from Luke 2, starting in verse 41. I'm so grateful that you guys print this in your bulletin because I got here this morning and realized to my horror, I don't have my reading glasses, uh, but this is large print. So that's fantastic. So I think I can read this. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. Why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them, and he came to Nazareth, and he was submissive to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom, and in stature, stature, and in favor. With God and man, one thing whenever I started working on this text um, that jumped out at me immediately is how we as humans are very drawn to speculative things, right? Speculation. Um, right now, it's it's just completely ripe with everything. I have, my, I have an older brother; three years older than me. And whenever we were in middle school, like whenever you know, he was just at that reading age. He bought every single book on like Bigfoot or UFOs or Loch Ness Monster, all of these speculative things that we as humans are like, I wonder if that's true or not. Does that exist or not? And it just draws me to realize we are very interested in speculation. And this passage reminds me of that because this is the only glimpse we get of Jesus' life from birth, seven days after, to the beginning of his ministry at something roughly 30 years. So the vast majority of the years that that God, as the God-man, walked on earth, we don't know anything except for the verses we just read, those 10 verses. But because we as humans love speculation, there are a lot of stories out there, non-canonical, non-biblical stories, about what Jesus must have been like as a child. Now, there's some that are contemporary. In the last couple of years, I didn't watch the movie, but there was a movie recently called The Young Messiah that's come out. It's Jesus at 12 years old, roughly the same age. And in the movie, first of all, Jesus has a British accent. I don't know why Jesus has to have a British accent, but he does. But from what I read about the movie, that young Jesus roams around, and he's healing people, and he's giving people sight, and he's doing all kinds of miracles. This young Jesus is a miracle worker. And of course, the drama of the plot is that some Romans are trying to get him, and they try to, you know, what? But so it's this dramatic story of Jesus at twelve years old, but it's entirely speculative, because we don't know if Jesus did miracles. In fact, I will point out later. I think the text kind of has a hint that Jesus didn't, as a child. But this this desire for speculation to know more about Jesus at this stage is not new. Even from the early church, and some of you are going to be very familiar with some of these, there are some sources of proclaimed, like, hey, here are some stories of Jesus as a young boy. Some of them are in the Apocrypha. Some of them are in sort of the, these, these, these books that the Roman Catholic Church has accepted into, um, essentially to be a, an addendum to the Bible. And some of them were not. But regardless, the earliest church did not recognize any of these as what we call canonical. And some of them are quite strange. Um, So even like we're talking about accounts of Jesus as a child written within the first maybe three to four hundred years of his death and resurrection. One of them has Jesus as a child getting mad at another child and turning him into clay. One of them has Jesus getting mad at another child, killing him and then resurrecting him. Another one has, this is the more famous one of of Jesus playing with with pigeons, then making them out of clay, blowing breath into them, and then they fly off. So there's all of this speculation of Jesus, the miracle worker, Jesus, this child, this prodigy child who's doing all of these incredible feats. But the fact is, this is all we have about Jesus at this age. This is all that we know is true about Jesus at this age. There's something dangerous about speculation, particularly biblical speculation, and, and and let's not just we evangelicals are guilty of this as well, aren't we? We evangelicals are guilty of. I, I've heard pastors say it, and I probably have said it myself. Things like, "Oh man, I wish that I we I wish that this sermon was included for us to read." I've heard that said for sure, and I probably have said it myself because I believe it would be interesting to read to know what Jesus said, the post-resurrected Jesus said to his followers on that road whenever he was walking them along, and then he revealed himself to them after his resurrection. So it says that he pointed to himself how the entire scriptures point to him. So that we, we get sort of the summary of the sermon, but we don't get the sermon. And I've heard people say, oh, I would love to have that sermon. But here's where speculation is dangerous, because speculation like that essentially undermines... The sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture is the claim that we as evangelicals hold, that really Orthodox Christianity holds, particularly highlighted in the Reformation, that we have from God what we need, sola scriptura, and it's sufficient. So we don't have that sermon by Jesus on the road. We don't need that sermon by Jesus on the road. We'll get it someday. We don't have it yet because we don't need it. We only have these 10 verses from Jesus' first 12, not just 12 years, right? 30-some years of life. We only need these 10 verses from those first 30-some years of Jesus' life. So with that in mind, as sort of our preamble, we're going to jump into the text and we're going to think about what the Spirit has for us, what the author wanted us to get. And we're going to spend a little bit of time uh, making an application So we just read the text. Everyone knows the story. Um, I believe that stories like this, I think when I thought of myself and how I used to preach even five or 10 years ago, I would sort of like find any single interesting thing in the text that I could say a lot about, it, and I would just say a lot about that. But as I've, I guess, I hope it's maturity. Uh, the more that I've done this, the more that I really am, am going back to what I was trained in my seminary classes of trying my hardest by the Spirit's help to get what's the central point that the author wants us to get out of the text, and that's the one I want to drive, not the stuff I find interesting. It's so tempting to do that. And I think the central point of this text is clear. There's a crux of this passage. And this passage about Jesus being left behind, I think that most of my life, if you just asked me in passing what's the passage about or what have you gotten out of the passage, probably I would have said something like, well, if I go on vacation, don't lose my kid. That's not the point of the passage. It's It's not a manual on good parenting. In fact, if Mary and Joseph had done that then we wouldn't get the actual crux of the passage because the crux of the passage is Jesus's self-awareness, self-revelation of who he really is. No one else quite gets it in this passage, but Jesus does. No one else understands what Jesus is all about and who Jesus is, but Jesus gets it, and it's pretty powerful. So, the passage is set up essentially in three things. There's a setup The crux of the passage is Jesus revealing his self-awareness, which is in verse 49. And then there's sort of a descent, just sort of a um, a relatively anticlimactic um, bringing back into the reality of uh, Jesus's earthly life as a child. So here's the setup. The setup is... The very first thing the passage shows us right off the bat is, and, and not surprisingly, because everything—if we—if we were in Luke, if we were preaching through Luke—we would be very clear at this point that Mary and Joseph were observant Jewish followers of the law. So, as pious, observant Jewish followers of the law, verse 41 doesn't surprise us at all that they did what those kinds of Jewish believers did—they would go up to Jerusalem at the feast of the Passover. It was a 2 days journey, which we think is something like 80 miles. So I live 15 minutes from here. And my sons and I have my, my two sons, Elias and Uni, are here. My wife and my two daughters are over the hill at a Gracie V. Free. But it took us 15 minutes to get over the hill. They're not very far. Um, from our church, Grace in La Mirada, it's about 80 miles down, if you go down to the coast and to Calabasas. And that's roughly about how far this trip was, about 80 miles. They think that, that they that they could do about 20, uh, 20 to 25 miles, and it's a two to three days journey. And so they're going up they go to Jerusalem, they spend their time there. Jesus is 12. And at 12 years old, not surprisingly, is a time when a young man would be spending a lot of time being discipled and being mentored by his father. The, the, the tradition that we know now of bar mitzvah wasn't something that they were in practice at the time, but there were sort, of, sort of like origins of it. There were origins in place of before the boy becomes a man, before he enters into manhood, there was a sort of like a more intense moment and time period of discipleship between the Father and the Son. And that's exactly the time period that we find here for Jesus. So the 12 years is not accidental or random. It is showing this is right at the time that this culture would have believed that this young man was entering into adulthood. Different than our culture, um, for sure. So they go up to Jerusalem... They head, turn around, they go back. They're, 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 they're about halfway back and they realize Jesus is not with us. If we want to be critical of, of, of Jesus' parents, we could right now. It's like, how did they lose their kid? What's going on with that? Uh, I don't think that's the point of the passage. Um, they traveled in caravans. Their whole, it's very likely that the entire community traveled together. and Not only did they travel together, but that the men would travel and the women would travel and the children would travel all in different areas within the caravan. And so particularly at this age, it's very understandable that Mary would have thought, well, Jesus is with Joseph, and Joseph would have thought, well, Jesus is with Mary, and he could have also been with the children because he's still young enough. So it's sort of, sort of understandable. When Often when my family travels... Uh, we go spend time with my brother, who's in Oklahoma, and sometimes in, in the in the mountains of New Mexico, we get to spend time there. I have four kids. My brother has eight kids. Anyone in this church have more than eight kids? Is that the winner? We have a couple of big families, I know. Eight kids is a lot. And uh, we will go on a hike or something like that, and we'll all just jump in three different vehicles, and we'll drive off. And about 15 minutes later, I'll get a call from my brother, and he's like, hey, uh, and he starts doing the head count. Like, he's recognized I only have, like, four of my kids. I need to re- make sure where the other four of my kids are because between the three vehicles, it's very likely we could have left someone behind. It's a very similar story to what uh, most of I don't think we've ever left one of his children. It's easier for me. Four kids, I can kind of track. Okay, these two are here, these two are here. I'm good to go. Eight. I wouldn't be able to keep track of eight. I would have lost one by now, I'm sure. But I haven't. So it's, it's sort of understandable that they don't know where Jesus is. They think he's in the group, but he's not. And then when they finally figure out that he's not, they have to travel back. Now, as a parent of four, and even if you're not a parent, it's not, it's not a leap for us to emotionally go where they must have been, right? Nervous, anxious, scared, frightened. But I think it's interesting in the way the story is told. Luke's not really worried about that. Is he? There's no flowery language. He just simply says, uh, when they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple. Most most interpreters think that that means a day traveling um, and then a day searching and then finding him on the third day, not searching for him three days in Jerusalem. After three days, they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers listening to them and asking them questions. And so the whole point of the story is just driving, it's driving to something, right? The point is not, don't lose your kids. The point is not, oh man, how scary would it be to lose your kid? The point is not, hey, let's really focus on the emotional effect that this is having on Mary and Joseph. We get a little bit of that from what Mary says to Joseph later on, but we don't get a lot of that. The, The point of the story is, it's a little setup. It's a setup to the account that we find. Is the account that we find is Jesus in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening, asking them questions. Not only is it, is, is it, a, it it's a temptation to become so speculative that we take away from the sufficiency of Scripture. So in other words, you're saying, oh, I kind of wish that we had this, but we don't have. I kind of wish that there was more stories about... Um, Mary, uh, after when we don't know when Joseph, he must've died. We don't know for sure. Like there's, that's, that's one way to sort of tear at the sufficiency of scripture to sort of wish that there were things that there, that the Holy Spirit just decided that we don't need another way that we can sort of undermine the sufficiency of scripture. It's, it's, it's not, it's probably worse than that. And that is to simply not read what's actually there. So this, I was reminded of this whenever I see this particular point of the passage when after three days they found him in the temple, verse 46, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And in my mind's eye, this text, I had in my mind not the image of what the Bible says. I had in my mind something more like, not like Jesus taking the proper role of a student sitting and asking questions, but more of Jesus teaching the class, Jesus up front giving the lecture. And uh, I, did, I, w- I, was, I, w- I was playing with this idea a little bit. And so what I did, uh, I spent some time looking at how different movies and different visual presentations represent this particular story. And I don't know if anyone's, I'm 46 years old, but when in the 1970s, there was a miniseries release called Jesus of Nazareth that used to play on TV as a miniseries, you know, like around Easter or something like that. And in the story, Jesus of Nazareth, in this movie, the scene that I had in my mind was exactly that scene. All of the teachers are seated, and Jesus is standing with his hands outstretched, giving a, giving a sermon, giving a lecture, which even the teachers didn't teach like that back then. He probably had on like fancy sneakers and one of those microphones that hangs around his face too. Like it just looked like it was a very contemporary version of Jesus's preaching. And I realized that when you're making a movie, you've got to, you know, it's not like they're they're They have to stick to the text perfectly, but what had happened is I'd seen this movie as a child. And every time I'd thought about this passage, I had inadvertently misinterpreted the passage based upon an image from a movie. When really the passage is quite clear. Jesus is, is sitting like a like a student not standing like a teacher and that's our cultural interpretation of a teacher and asking questions first 47 all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers so whatever he was doing wasn't merely like any other 12-year-old boy right there was something going on something different about this kid Because even though he was sitting and he was asking questions, right, he was also answering questions back. Uh, The the teaching style of the rabbis back then would have been very Socratic. It would have been very, you know, questions and answers. And typically everyone would have been seated, um, it wasn't a lecture format. It was a, it was a, a more of a, a, a discipleship mentoring sort of seated questions and answers. And so he's asking questions. They're asking questions and returns. He's answering their questions. And his answers are amazing. That's the word that we get here. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. In other words, he's not your typical squirmy 12-year-old boy. There's something different about Jesus at twelve, and we get more about what that is at the crux of the passage, which is coming soon. So all of this is the setup. Verse forty-eight: When his parents saw him, they were astonished. Slightly different Greek word than the first word, right? So the scribes are amazed. Now the parents get there, and then, and then astonished has a little bit of it. It's not merely so. The amazed is the sort of word that we hear a lot in the in the. Uh, um, uh, in the Gospels after Jesus' miraculous whatever, right? So if Jesus has a miraculous catch of fish, amazement is the word that the crowd is usually referred to as. If Jesus is, has someone stretch out his hand, or when Jesus f- feeds the 5,000, right? It, they are amazed. And so Jesus is amazing. But this word is a slightly different word. It's, it's got something different going on psychologically in the parents. They're not amazed in the same way that a crowd is amazed when they see Jesus perform a miraculous event. They're more sort of uh, almost frustrated is built into this a little bit, a little bit of, you know, trepidation. When they saw him, they were astonished. They were relieved, no doubt. That's not really captured in the word, but we can imagine that's the case. They were astonished and his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. The first thing I want to, to, to highlight is one of my favorite characters I, I, uh, at Grace, oh man, 10 years ago we did, a, we did a Christmas Advent sermon series where we picked different characters of the Christmas story and I think we did four sermons, maybe six sermons on each one of those characters and they gave me Joseph. I was happy enough to do Joseph but one of the things I realized when I did Joseph is Joseph has zero lines in the New Testament. Have you ever thought about that before? Joseph never says anything. Now, Joseph's a man of action. That's what I love about this. I grew to really appreciate the the sort of visual uh, picture that we have of a godly father in Joseph in that he's not a man of words, but he's a man of action. I can sometimes be a man of words and not a man of action. Joseph does what? Joseph has a dream, and in the dream they say, go ahead and marry He's like, okay. We don't even get the words, okay, he just goes and marries Mary, right? Joseph has another dream, says, hey, take your family, go away, they're not safe. We don't even get him responding in any way. He just takes his family and goes to Egypt to keep Jesus safe. He is a man of action, not of words. And even here, no lines for Joseph. I particularly think think there's something really cool going on here, right? How much training, discipleship, teaching... How instrumental was Joseph in the life of young Jesus to make Jesus into the man that he actually turns into become? And yet we get none of that. And we get a whole bunch of lines by Peter, right? If we were going to cast the New Testament, Peter would have to be like one of the second or third bills. Peter only gets to spend a couple of years with Jesus. Joseph's with Jesus at least 12 years, maybe more. Joseph's instrumental in shaping Jesus. Joseph's instrumental in teaching Jesus about grace and mercy. Right? What do we know about Joseph? We know that Joseph is a gracious man because he was willing to forgive Mary. He was willing to trust that God said, because even before the dream, remember, before the dream, he was like, hey, I'm going I'm to be gracious to how we deal with Mary's predicament. So Jesus grew up in this home of this, of this law-abiding, but not Pharisaical law-abiding, a gracious law-abiding man as his, as his earthly father. I, I, I wonder, I wonder, Jesus' own response to the Pharisees, how much of it maybe was even shaped by his experience growing up in the home of Joseph. I know you can love the law and be gracious. I grew up in a home that modeled that. You Pharisees aren't doing it right. So here we have Mary speaking the words, Joseph, once again, man of action, not man of words. And what does she say? It's essentially an accusation. It's essentially a, Jesus, you have mistreated us. Jesus, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you and we've been in distress. You have made us nervous. Now, we don't know if Jesus stayed, up, stayed behind deliberately Or intentionally, maybe he didn't get the text from mom and dad, Hey, we're meeting to to head back south or wherever it was. But whichever one, Luke Luke doesn't think we need to know that, doesn't think we should care. All we know is that Jesus stayed, and Mary is now giving some sort of accusation that Jesus has mistreated them, which is when you think about it, it's a pretty wild accusation for a sinless child. I'm I'm gonna salvage Mary, so if you're feeling nervous about how I'm treating Mary right now, it's okay. We're, she, she, she comes out really, really nice in this passage. Then the That's this is all set up in the verse 49 is where it really hits. This is where we see for the first time we know from reading in the Bible, reading only if we have Luke up until this point, we know that Jesus is a very miraculous, marvelous answer to prayer. We know that he is the Messiah. We know that there's something supernatural about his origins, about his birth, all of these things. And so now what we learn about Jesus is not for the first time we learn that Jesus is the Messiah or for the first time that we learn there's something special about this kid. But what we learn in the crux of this passage is that Jesus knows something about himself. That's what he says. Verse 49. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's House. Now, there's a play on words, seems fairly deliberate in the way the story is told to us by Luke, because Mary says, uh, your father and I, this guy, this quiet guy, your father and I have been looking for you. You've made us distressed. And then Jesus says, well, why were you looking for me? Wouldn't you have known that I would be in my father's house? Same word, different referent. This is another one of those times that we could probably be pretty harsh to uh, Mary and Joseph and say, well, wait, what do you guys, you guys, would you forget? Did you forget the miraculous birth of Jesus? Did you forget all of the things that were told to you about this child? Like, how could you have forgotten that? Because, first of all, for us, it, it happened, you know, just a few verses earlier. Whereas in their life, it was 12 years earlier. I also think it's a really good Reminder, it's a good hint that the last 12 years have not been filled with Jesus doing miraculous acts. Right? It's sort of like they're expecting him to behave like any normal 12-year-old child. They're expecting him to be. That's what he has proven to be up until this point. In fact, you even wonder if if there's ever a night they're going to bed like, wow, he's kind of a normal kid, not quite what we expected. Kind of just does his chores, kind of just memorizes the Torah, kind of just does what all the other 12-year-olds do to the point that they sort of got used to this behavior of Jesus and all of a sudden there's some deviation. He, he did something different. He stayed behind. He made us nervous. Why did you do that? And Jesus is reminding, I'm about my father's business. I'm in my father's place. If Joseph was defensive... Or you know, passive aggressive. It might have even hurt his feelings, right? Wait, wait, who's your father? I'm your father, right? What are, you, what are you talking about? Right. But I don't think that I think that there was there was something going on completely different. But the point is once again not Mary and Joseph's response at this. The point is Jesus's self awareness and his revelation of that. So that's why I named the I name the sermon Jesus, fully God, fully boy. Here he is revealing he's fully God. We think of Jesus as fully God, fully man. Uh, And and when I preach this at Grace, I kind of made more about the tween. This is the tween years of Jesus. We think of tweens as like, you know, in between, not quite a teenager and whatever else. But this is in between. The tweenness is in between Jesus' birth and his ministry. It's the only passage that we get. But we know that at least by this time, and maybe it was on this day, Jesus, by the Spirit, is revealed to him your father's God. And you, Jesus, will need to remind your parents of that. It's a pretty unusual <laughs> you know, shifting of um, uh, uh, authorities, right? That you will need to remind your parents graciously, kindly, without sin, and without pride. It would be pretty hard to find in a 12 year old boy, right? Uh, remind your parents that uh, this was where you were supposed to be. So we get this this lightning bolt of a reminder of who Jesus is, and Jesus knows who he is. And then the rest of the passage, and this is why I said it earlier, it's sort of anticlimactic, because you're like, oh man, it's going to get good now. Jesus knows who he is. What's going to happen next? Well, what happens next? I love the way this, this is written. Verse 50, They didn't understand the saying he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her hearts. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Very normal. First 12 years of Jesus' life seem to be very normal. We get this sort of lightning bolt self-revelation of who Jesus is. And then now we have another however many years until his ministry starts. We all think it's around 30, but it's just, you know, we're, we're guessing at that point. A relatively normal existence. Being submissive to his parents. So, so there's this moment in which he is called upon to remind his parents of, his, of what, his, what he came to do and what his role is. But ultimately, uh, he's going to submit to them. He's going to obey them. He's going to go do what it is that they've asked him to do. Mary and Joseph had it pretty easy, right? They had a sinless child. I love my sons, but neither of them are sinless. I think they would agree with that. My daughters either. I can't, they're they're not sinless either. But Mary and Joseph had a a pretty unusual situation. But we're also going to find that their calling was, in many ways, very difficult, particularly for Mary. So that's the text. That's us just sort of walking through the text and walking through to say, okay, there's this setup. There's some things that help us to understand culturally what's going on, try to understand what's going on. Then we get the lightning bolt of Jesus' self-revelation. Jesus is fully God. But then we get this reminder, but he's just fully boy again. He's just a submissive boy. He's growing. He's increasing in wisdom and in stature and favor with God. A man in a way that's very similar to the way that Luke just told us that John the Baptist increases. Pretty similar. The wording's slightly different. But uh, a, a young man who gets God's hand is upon him. So let's pull out some lessons from this and try to apply them to our lives. So story and now some lessons and application um, the first lesson is, I think that big overview, helicopter view of the passage. One of the lessons we can get out of it is the expectations you have of Jesus are going to shade and shape your, uh, how you encounter Jesus. Right? So the, the first one is a, is a pretty, uh, um, Not even really that important, but the the teachers expected Jesus to be a normal 12-year-old child and they found him amazing because he revealed him to be something different than that, right? So the expectation they have of this 12-year-old boy is he's just a normal 12-year-old boy. When I preached this at, at our church, I had a Jan Buck as a lady in our church who's taught our fifth grade Sunday school class for over 20 years. And I, had, I asked her, what's a 12-year-old boy like in your class? Well, she's the expert. She's the resident expert of Gracie Leafree of 12-year-old boys. And she said, you know, 12-year-old boys can be pretty mischievous and squirmy. And then she said some stuff about 12-year-old girls, and she made some comparisons. And, um, and it's, it's just a reminder for us to read. And it's, She's a dear friend of mine, and I taught the fifth grade Sunday school class with her a number of years ago. Uh, of just Jesus being different. So the expectation that the leaders have of Jesus is being a normal 12-year-old boy, and he exceeds those expectations to the point that they are astonished, amazed. Astonished is the word for Mary. But I think Mary's is is the one that's gonna hit home a little bit more because what was Mary's expectation of Jesus? Mary's expectation of Jesus was that he would make her happy. That he would do things to make her feel comfortable. That he would be a good son and would not cause her distress. It's an understandable, it's an understandable thing for really parents to think about their children. Generally, it's, we're always going to be disappointed by. It. But specifically, it's understandable for Mary to think this because her son is special. He's not going to be sinful. He's not going to. He, you would think that a sinless child would equate a child who's never going to disappoint you. It seems like an understandable equation, but it's absolutely false because what we get revealed here is Jesus' expectation was not, his mission was not to meet Mary's expectations. I'm going to say that again because it's actually... The more I thought about this, it's, 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 it's actually, when we start to put it to ourselves, it's, it's, it's a remarkably God-centered way to see this text. That Mary has an expectation of Jesus that he will be with them on their way back from Jerusalem. He does not meet that expectation. She says to him, why did you treat me that way? You made me, you made me nervous, Jesus, and I didn't want to be made to feel nervous. You made me scared. And Jesus' point is essentially, Mom, my mission is not your peace, your psychological peace, meeting your expectations. I have a greater mission. Let's extrapolate that to his whole life and her whole life. What mother would want to be at the feet of the cross and watch her son die? murdered. But Jesus is like, hey, my mission is greater than making you feel peace, meeting your expectations, and making you the center of my world. But in fact, by not doing that, Jesus cares for Mary and all of us well better than any son has ever cared for any parent ever in the history of the world. But he breaks her heart as a mother to have to see that. Why? Not because he's he's callous towards her, not because he doesn't care for her, but because he's got a greater mission. And I think we do the same thing with Jesus, don't we? We come to Jesus with our expectations. And we find ourselves frustrated when he doesn't meet those expectations. Jesus, I've been so faithful to follow you. I thought if I would follow you, that my job wouldn't have to change three times in the last 12 months because of COVID. And we get frustrated about that. Because Jesus hasn't met that expectation. Or Jesus, I have followed you. I have trained my family. I have have raised my children to believe in you. I would have thought that that would mean that my health would not have deteriorated the way that it did. Or Jesus, why is my marriage struggling? We have tried so hard to to build our marriage based upon your word. And we have an expectation that because we have done X, you will do Y. And because we bring these expectations to Jesus, we forget. We put ourselves in the position that Jesus' role is to meet our expectations and it's obviously not true. Now the funny thing about that, I don't think any of us would say that. Jesus, in a prayer let's say like we're not going to get a, a, a pastoral prayer. Jesus, you're here to meet our expectations. But I think deep down in our actions in our life, the way that we live, we do tend to live that way. Jesus when you don't meet my expectations, I get frustrated, I get discouraged. So let's be aware of that. And the second one, this is where Mary comes out looking really nice. There's a, in this first passage right here, Jesus, why have you treated us thus? We get the frustration of Mary. But by the end of the passage, what do we have? His mother treasured all these things in her heart. So at some point later, potentially... When Luke's actually recording this and perhaps even talking to Mary about this whole experience, there's there's some scholars think that maybe Luke was interviewing Mary and Mary's actually telling them the story and that's how he knows the story. And when Mary at that point is telling the story, she's telling it in a way that no longer is full of dissatisfaction and frustration. Can you believe that twerp? He stayed behind and made me nervous, right? Can you believe that he died on the cross and broke my heart or whatever else? No. What do we have? We have later Mary saying oh, these were good things. She's treasuring these things in her heart. Hard things when she walked through them, but good and beautiful things now. So let's be on that path. Let's be on the merry path. Let's be on the path that says, Jesus, whatever I'm walking through now and you're not meeting my expectations now, there will come a day, and I believe this by faith because of what you've already done in the past, there will come a day that I will be able to treasure these things in my heart no matter how difficult they are. And I don't know you people. Some of you are no doubt walking through incredible difficulties. Incredible difficulties to the point that what I'm saying right now could almost feel callous or harsh, but I'm just telling us that at some point, whether it's in this world or the next, and it might be in both. It might be in both. There is no reason to be hopeless that we will not come to this within this life, just like Mary is. But we certainly have the full confidence that when Jesus comes to complete his work, that we will then be able to treasure all these things in our heart. So let's be on the merry path. Whatever it is that Jesus is not meeting the expectations of your life today, pastorally, maybe it's even things you haven't even voiced. Maybe even just being here this morning is reminding, yeah, there's some times that I've been tempted to be frustrated with Jesus too. What do we learn from Mary? Mary voices that to Jesus. Jesus can handle that. He can handle our frustration. She voices it, Jesus, why did you treat me like this? And then later, though, she comes to treasure it in her heart. She comes to accept this was Jesus' role. This is what Jesus was here to do. Oh, Holy Spirit, help us with those two things. Let me pray for us. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we are grateful for your word. Uh, Allow it to minister to us. Um, I pray that uh, we would come to you honestly with our expectations so that then we could then... Transfer them into the proper expectations and ultimately be able to treasure whatever circumstances you lay in your sovereignty and our path that we could then navigate our lives in ways that would cause us to love you more, to rest in your grace more, and ultimately to be beacons of light in this dark world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.